When Curtis Chin was growing up, his parents owned a very well-known spot on Detroit's map, Chung's Restaurant in Midtown. It was a second home of sorts. If you've ever gone to a Chinese restaurant and you see a little kid sitting in the back doing extra homework, that was me growing up at Chung's. But he wasn't just doing homework. Curtis was an observant kid with an eye for the array of Detroiters who stopped in for tangy spare ribs and that almond boneless chicken. It became a staple on Chinese-American menus all around the region. People working their way through Curtis's consciousness in those years included Diana Ross, Bruce Lee, then-Mayor Coleman Young, and even on one auspicious night in Chung's, Yul Brenner himself. Today we're talking to Curtis Chin about his new memoir, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. The book recalls his childhood tales and details what it was like growing up in Detroit as a Chinese-American kid after the murder of Vincent Chin. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Curtis Chin lives in Los Angeles these days, where he writes and produces documentary films. You know, as a documentary filmmaker, I don't normally like to appear on camera. I like to be behind the scenes. But the memoir he wrote was a bigger story. This wasn't just about him. I think with writing this particular memoir, because it started off really as a personal uh, story uh, directed towards my nieces and nephews, uh, because, you know, my family had this long history in Detroit going all the way back to the late 1800s. But after my dad passed away, we all left. And um, as soon as my siblings started having kids, I really wanted them to know about that history because I just thought it was so colorful and vibrant and really shaped, you know, who our family was. And so in that sense, I was just telling small family stories. I wasn't necessarily thinking that this, uh, that it connected to this larger narrative of what's going on in the country these days. Um, and so once I once I thought of that, then um, it became a much more difficult book to write, but one that I was committed to doing because I do think that there's a lot of things going on in our country these days that, that need addressing. There are places in Detroit where history has has been in, unfolding in place over a lot of time. But part of what has made the, the telling of Detroit's Chinatown's stories so complex is the fact that there has been sighting and reciting and buildings, uh, you know, whole neighborhoods, you know, sort of torn down and mowed down. So people may today not be as familiar with Chung's Restaurant, which was your family's place. Do you mind just saying a little bit about Chung's to, to set the table? But it was that old phrase, I pity the fool who, <laughs> who didn't get to uh, try it out. Um, yeah, no, it was just a classic Chinese uh, chop suey joint. Um, and it was opened by my great-grandfather in 1940. It was located in the original Chinatown over on 3rd Avenue by Corktown. But it switched when, as you mentioned, the city demolished the old Chinatown in lieu of the freeway. And so we relocated to what was called the uh, New Chinatown, or what they were hoping to do was an international district. And uh, that's pretty much where I grew up, in that location, in the Cass Corridor. Uh, and it was just a fabulous restaurant. I mean, I really feel like that restaurant represented the city, right? Because during the day, our clientele was all the, the white-collar workers from downtown or the students from you know, Wayne State or the people from the medical center. But then at night, it really was the people that lived around the corridor. And so, yeah, I really got to see the whole city. And so that was really a nice, wonderful experience. Kitchen time, as folks might imagine, was a big part of your life from an early age. 
And in the first part of the book, you talk about how you and your brothers hung out and did homework and helped out as directed. I might be making this sound a bit idyllic, <laughs> it's, but I really enjoyed reading about what you took in those years from observing your mom. Tell us a little bit about your mother. Wow. Uh, my mom's probably one of the strongest figures in my life. She raised us, uh, all six of us, you know, and I always knew growing up that she had a hard life. I mean, part of it, it was observing it. And yes, part of it was her telling us that she had a hard life and, you know, um, really trying to push us to, to have more options in life. We'd have these conversations just sitting in the back of the restaurant where I'd ask her about her view of the world. And she would always surprise me with her responses and in a good way. Later in the book, we kind of get a picture of her as maybe someone who was really interested in science and science's education. Um, was maybe part of this book kind of thinking about thinking about her life in a different way, too? I think that she is a person who didn't have very many choices in life, given her circumstances. Being a woman, being born in China, being a middle child, she really never felt that she had much agency in life. And I think that the one thing that she felt that she could contribute was through her kids. That's why she put a lot of pressure on us on one hand. I mean, but also I think that we were all happy to do it because we felt that she had sacrificed so much for her life. Her interests really were, were in the sciences, but actually more in the math because that's what she really excelled at. You know, so I would say the math and sciences. From a very young age, she would give us math problems at the back of the restaurants. Yeah. You tell this story in the book about one of the restaurant's cooks, a guy named Heng Suk. And in it, you share an awful lot of information about the diversity of people that you met in Chinatown and the relative lack of safety. Later on, you talked about someone putting graffiti with an anti-Japanese slur on the apartment that your family was supposed to take. Curtis, what was the cost of all this on your parents trying to navigate you and the other kids through that kind of experience? Well, the opening line to the book is, welcome to Chung's for here to go. I mean, that's a common phrase that you hear anytime you enter a Chinese or any type of restaurant, right? And I try to uh, add extra heft to that line because that really was the theme growing up. Do I stay in this comfortable situation with my family and all the free Chinese food I could eat? You know, really mm. wonderful situation, great food. But at the same time, the city is falling apart around us, you know, in the 80s. It was a really, really difficult time for the city, right? You had the auto industry that was struggling. You had crack cocaine. You had AIDS on the horizon. I personally knew five people murdered by the time I was 18 years old. Um, but despite that, you know, we had this really wonderful restaurant that made it hard to say, you know, oh, we're just going to write off the city. We're just going to abandon Detroit. And so it was that tug. And obviously, as I get older and I'm discovering my own sexuality and realizing that I'm gay, how does that fit into the picture, you know, and how does that complicate my notion of whether or not I could stay, you know, not just in Detroit, but also with my family in this restaurant? You talk in the book extensively about this this long process of coming to terms with your sexual identity. And there was this guy in your life who or relatively early on, I mean, he was a crush, but also a sort of model of a different kind of masculinity. Do you mind telling a little bit about Mr. Ma? I can't talk about him without my heart melting a little bit, oh. even after all these years. So it's really <laughs> difficult. Uh, yeah, no, I just <laughs> I just loved being around him. He was our fry cook. Um, so he was sort of in the um, corner right by the door. And so I'd hang around with him a lot. 
even just now thinking about him 40 odd years later, I still, my heart still flutters a little bit. I don't know what else you want me to say. Well, I mean, it sounds it sounds like you two never really had a conversation. I mean, it sounds like he kind of he recognized what was going on with you. And, you know, he was he was nice to you. Definitely. Do you think that in any way, even though there wasn't anything overt spoken between you two? I mean, how important was it just to see people who, you know, there was this rapport with, if if there wasn't anything cooked enough in your own identity to say, oh, I'm queer and so is he and I'm, you know, I'm attracted to this guy. Like, do you think it was important to have someone like him in your life? You know, I, I'm just thinking back, like, do I feel that he was special to me over anybody else? I mean, uh, or was he just a nice guy to everybody? Mm. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh and I don't know if he sensed that I was attracted to him. I mean, he did come from San Francisco, so maybe he might have been more aware of these type of things. Uh, but, but keep in mind, this is like in the 80s, right, where people weren't as visible. The cues that we send out weren't as well known or as commonplace. Um, I just feel like he was oh, he's just a really nice guy who made me laugh. And, you know, it just had this. I mean, obviously, there was a physical attraction, but um just someone who paid attention to me was really important because, you know, I grew up in a big house, right, with 10 people, if not more, at, at any one time. And, you know, oftentimes I felt lost. But he was just really good about paying attention to the little details about me. So it made it just seem like he was listening, which is really important. So so whether or not that was because of some type of shared bond and being queer, um, I just think any kid just need someone to listen to them, right? Adults other than parents who who sort of see them a little bit. Exactly. You know, I mean, um, I wasn't the special one growing up because we had six kids. I wasn't the oldest. That was Craig. I wasn't the golden child, which was Chris. I wasn't Calvin, the one who went to Yale eventually. I wasn't Cindy, the only girl. And I wasn't Clifford, who was, you know, the the youngest boy. So I felt like all of them had something special about them. And I always went through thinking, oh, I'm just this middle child, this Jan Brady syndrome, right? You know, Marsha, 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 Marsha type of thing. (laughs) And so suddenly there's this guy who actually did pay attention to me. We need to take a break. More with Curtis Chin in just a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Curtis, you talked about the fact that uh, you were aware of street crime and of hate crime as as a young person. You know, you you knew of murder as a thing that was happening in your city and in your neighborhood. And you were also a young kid when Vincent Chin was murdered. And you, while you two weren't, you know, weren't like personal friends or anything. You knew of him, at least, and his mom, Lily. It's pretty evident how terrifying that period must have been for people in the community worried about their kids. 
Do you mind saying a little bit about what it was like to be a young person when when Vincent Chin was murdered by some white auto workers? So this was during the height of the anti-Japanese sentiment in the 80s, uh, where a lot of car companies were laying off people, people were losing their homes. And, you know, Asians became a very easy scapegoat, not just amongst, you know, the rank and file workers, but also amongst the leadership. And so it was a challenging time. But again, growing up in that Chinese restaurant in Chinatown, I did feel safe. I felt like that was a little uh, cocoon, right, or a bubble for us. Um, Obviously, when Vincent was murdered, that sort of shattered that. But still, at that time, you know, my my response is really, well, what are we going to do about it? It immediately jumped into like not playing the victim, right? Because my mom had always taught us, you know, work hard, but also just, you know, to be involved, to just jump in. Do you know what I mean? Don't be passive about things. Take control of things. Right. And so one of the things that I noticed really early on was the lack of media coverage to the Vincent Chin case. I would bet you that even a lot of your listeners now have never heard of the case, um, even though to us in the Chinatown community, but also uh, nationally, uh, the Vincent Chin case for Asian Americans is a, is a very pivotal moment uh, along the levels of a, of a Emmett Till. But yet a lot of people still haven't heard about it. It took a total, I think, of like 12 days before anybody reported about it. And this is after this guy was in the hospital for four days struggling for his life. You know, nobody thought to cover that. Right. I mean, it was just really, you know, shocking to me. And so um, I, I started writing letters to the editor, trying to get them to cover it. But, you know, sadly, I was 14 years old and not a very good writer at that time. And so nothing ever got published. But um, that's really what set me on this course of um, understanding the importance of storytelling. You know, because I honestly believe if if the media had done a better job of covering the story, I don't think the judge would have let these killers off with a $3,000 fine and never having served a single day in jail. Yeah. There's an astonishing story. Maybe I don't know how astonishing it is to anyone who's experienced this kind of uh, misidentification before. But you tell this story later of a white teacher in one of your classes later calling on you as Vincent. I mean, what what that does to a teenager to be misidentified by, you know, a, a dead young man's name who just happens to be also ethnically Chinese. It's just wow. I think that's pretty common. I mean, I don't I, I'm I, you know, uh, I think I was always getting misidentified as somebody else, usually often my brother, <laughs> you know, but uh, I think that when you're a person of color, you know, and you're in an area that's majority some other community, uh, they say it, you know, and it, and people don't mean to be mean or awful or anything about that. Right. I mean, it just happens. It's just a, their brain is just like, oh, they're making connection and they do the quick shorthand. Um, but it still hurts. Do you know what I mean? Or it mm-hmm. still confuses you, you know, even though even though the intention isn't isn't, you know, to be a jerk. It just it just happens sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. And we all do it, I think. Yeah. The book relays an awful lot of warmth in in your family and just life and times at the restaurant. But also it's evident that you were wrestling with how and when to come out to your family and I just wonder, as you as you got into your early adulthood, whether you recognized a, a level of compartmentalization that you'd had to do in your life. Well, you know, as a Buddhist, um, or 
quasi Buddhist. I mean, you know, we didn't really go to temple or anything, but you know, um, my family never really exhibited any um, outward homophobia. They never said anything anti-gay. And in fact, you know, they were very friendly with all our gay customers. Um, but yet at the same time, I didn't feel safe coming out even in that environment because you just never want to take a chance, right? Even if you're 99% sure that your family's probably going to react well, you just don't want to take that 1% chance because you just don't want to lose your family. My staying in the closet had more to do with that and my fear of also disappointing my family, you know, particularly my mom, because again, she had sacrificed so much of her life, you know, for us and her kids that I was just afraid of disappointing her. I was never really afraid of like, well, what happens if I were to get kicked out? Would I be able to be independent and be on my own? Yeah, I'm a, like I said, I'm a pretty self um, blind guy. I had to be as a middle child, right? Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I really was more concerned about how they would respond and whether or not they would take it okay. My staying in the closet really was about protecting them more so than this need of me having to assert myself or feeling like I was a less than person if I didn't come out. One of the most poignant parts of the book for me was reading about your your question that you referenced early on, you know, is this for here to go? And I think I think a lot of Americans who grew up in families with relatively recent immigrant stories, like there's this whole this whole thing of being at home away from the previous generation's home or at, at mm -hmm. home from their own home. And it, it was just so, it was so striking that there you were trying to figure out whether and when and how you should leave where there were people in your own family who'd had to ask that question relatively recently. I mean, obviously you're still living in Los Angeles now. How do you look back on that decision and how you eventually made it? I mean, as someone who's left the Detroit area for a good number of years now, right, 30 odd years, I still think about this. It's not a done deal when you leave when you leave a place that you love. Um, so our restaurant closed in 2000 in the location that you know I grew up in, and then recently it got sold. And the new owner actually went out of the way to track me down in LA to ask me if I would revive this restaurant because the restaurant was so well known in Detroit, right? It really was iconic. And, um, you know, I have to admit there was a 5% of me that thought like, oh, could I go back to Detroit and reopen the restaurant? And so I don't know if these are ever settled things in ourselves, right? I think in summation, I do think that it was the right decision. I mean, because I've had so many great opportunities in life. I've traveled to over 600 you know, places in 20 countries, screening my films. You know, I've gotten to write for network television. Um, I've just had these really wonderful experiences in life that... I don't know if it would have happened uh, if I had stayed in Detroit, but at the same time, you know, I do feel this sadness that, you know, I'm one of those people that did leave and didn't fight to, uh, you know, make sure that, that Detroit was coming back strong. The book is really enjoyable to read, but I just wondered what you hope people will take away from it. Like I said, it's a love letter to Detroit. I want people to pick up the book thinking they're going to learn about a kid in a Chinese restaurant, but I want them to also then realize that, you know what, you're actually learning about America. You're learning about the 80s, you know, because I feel like I want to connect this to make this a real American story. But I also want my book to sort of help with the conversation that we're having in this country right now. You know, uh, we're having these really deep, serious conversation. And basically what it's done is it's polarized our country. I don't think we can avoid some of these topics, but I do think that we should try to find a better way to do it so that we can come back together at the end of the day. 
And I think Chinese restaurants actually offer a wonderful opportunity for this because they're one of those few places in the country where you can actually walk in and be seated next to someone who's from a different race, religion, socioeconomic background. And if you just took the moment to sort of say hi to them, that would be a great step forward. Uh, the way I sort of pitched this book to my agent was, you know, come for the egg rolls, but stay for the talk on racism. <laughs> and so, you know, hopefully the book will help with that. Curtis has some readings coming up. He's really an amazing person. If you can go, you should. You'll find him on November 8th in Rochester Hills at Oakland University. He has dates on November 9th and 11th in Ann Arbor. And on Sunday, November 12th, he'll be at the Detroit Historical Museum. You can get details on the readings at Curtis's website. That's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. You can also listen to our new podcast, Doe Dynasty. Episode 3 is dropping today. Subscribe wherever you listen to your pods. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our intern is Olivia Meradian. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.